Welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, one of my favorite singers, front people, one of my favorite authors, one of my all-around just favorites, uh, Eric Davidson of the band The New Bomb Turks, New Bomb Turks. Uh, one of the great all-time punk bands, certainly one of the great 90s punk bands. We'll get into that in a second. But also author of one of my favorite music books, a book that I've I've actually read probably about twice now the whole way through and, and multiple times just flipping through different parts to relearn stuff. But the book is called We Never Learn, The Gunk Punk Undergut, 1988 to 2001. More on that all in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me at turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. It's an email address. My brother, Tristan Abraham, and show producer, producer, producer and runner of the Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash turnedoutapunk. Tristan Abraham, thank you so much for all your hard work, sir. He will get back to you because um, right now I am in the middle of starting a new job that's going on. Uh, there's a new fucked up record. I'll talk about that in a second. So things are, things are busy, but Tristan is staying on top of that stuff. So thank you very much, Tristan, for doing that. Uh, you can also find me on various forms of social media at left for Damien. If you're looking for a way to support the show, the best way to do that is by telling all your friends about it and subscribing to it and liking it and doing all that kind of good stuff on the preferred listening platform of your choice. And, uh, yeah, that, that's the best way to support it, you know? And, uh, and, uh, thank you for supporting it. Speaking of thanks, I have to give a huge thank you to the fine folks at Vans. Vans, uh, once again, in the house of Vans are running shows all summer long in New York and Chicago. I myself got to go to one two weekends ago. I got to sit down and interview, Live on stage for a live pop-up surprise turned out a punk episode, Fletcher and from Pennywise and Craig Satari from Sick of It All at the same time, and it is fucking awesome. You'll get to hear that real soon. Um, I'm going to put that up for you to listen to, and it's a good one. It is a great one. And the show was incredible. Uh, Slashers also played. Uh, the, the good buddy Jay Howell, a man who I've let stick needles in me multiple times to give me a tattoo. Well, it was like one tattoo, but there's a lot of needles required for one tattoo, as any of you with tattoos know. Uh, but Jay Howell was there, did an amazing art illustration installation. My God, I'm I'm a little tired. It's been a, a long week with these two jobs. But anyway, he did this art installation, and uh, we had a fun time. And then I was walking around the streets after the show, going to Shake Shack. They're not sponsoring this, but uh, I'm going to be honest. That's where I was going. And who did I run into on the street? But Lee fucking Ronaldo. That's right author of the song Genetic, the the best Sonic Youth song of all time. I know that's debatable, but uh, that's one person's opinion. Uh, also, you know, an incredible songwriter for a bunch of other songs and solo stuff. And anyway, talked to Lee, brought up the show, said sometime in the future. So, you know, I'm, I'm out there doing hard work. So thank you, Van, so much for bringing me out to New York and giving me the opportunity to kind of hang out with, with you know, Fletcher and Craig on stage and to also run into Lee Ronaldo on the streets. Um, Vans has also supported this podcast for the past while now and uh, have just let me book whoever I want to book and let me keep putting on these 
these, uh, you know, fun little uh, surprise pop-up events at the House of Vans. So you can also find out about the upcoming House of Vans. I think Deer Hunter played one this week. I think there's there's more coming up. Interpol's playing one. So you would be remiss not to get out to one of the House of Vans. They're closing the Brooklyn one. It's going away. I'm, I'm bummed because I love that place. So many good memories, and including this most recent trip there. Uh, so thank you, Vans, for supporting this show and bringing me out to New York. And you will get to hear that real soon, I promise you. Uh, speaking of real soon, uh, really soon, I will be, you know, going out on the road again, playing some shows because Fucked Up has a new record coming out. It's called Dose Your Dreams. Uh, there are two songs out right now. You can hear them on all those listening services that you subscribe to, if you subscribe to them. And if not, you can also hear them on, I'm sure, YouTube, and I think probably the, the Merge site. Our record's coming out on Merge Records, which means, yes, finally, Mac and Laura will come on the show, hopefully, fingers crossed. Uh, they are people I've wanted to have on the show for a very long time. Huge fan of Super Chunk. Really happy to be there. It's an amazing label, and yeah. Couldn't be happier to be there. And I'm really stoked on this record. I'm really excited for everyone to get to hear it. Uh, it's a very different record. It's a record uh, that at first I was like, how's this going to go? <laughs> Didn't have a lot of faith in it. But I'm excited for how it turned out. I'm excited to hear what everyone thinks of it. And I will be playing shows. So go out there and get tickets for those shows. If you want to come and see Fucked Up play some gigs. And uh, I will be, I will be there. You know, come up and we can talk Turned Out of Punk too. If you if you don't like Fucked Up and you just want to hear Turned Out of Punk, trust me, I, I blab a lot on stage. So it's kind of like these intros. And if you don't like these intros, don't worry, there's music too. They, they eventually shut me up in the band. I mean, the band eventually shuts me up. Uh, so yeah, that's going to be going on all uh, fall and winter long. So get ready. It's going to be some fun times. Uh, also, uh, we've got some great stuff coming up on this show, including today. With Eric Davison of the New Bomb Turks. And, of course, We Never Learn, one of my favorite music books. I love that book. He invented a genre. When you invent a genre, you, you will have a special place in my heart forever. And he did here with this gunk punk undergut. Uh, or gunk punk, I think, is the, the official description of the genre. And he, he makes a great case for it. And it's a, a really fun book. I strongly recommend reading it. Uh, but also, I strongly recommend, if you have not heard the New Bomb Turks, you go out there and listen to them. New Bomb Turks are a band that I was fortunate enough to be uh, to be bestowed with very young because of my hanging out at Full Blast Records. We talk about that a little bit on the show today, so I'm not going to go on about it again. But they are one of those bands. Like, they have put out some incredible punk records. And, like, I think... You know, at times, you know, they get mis, you know, classified as, oh, they're garage rock or, oh, it's punk rock or, oh, I've always thought of them as hardcore, you know, but that, that's just me. Uh, I think they're just, you know, great punk, you know, and I think that is the thing. It, it can be garage rock, it can be hardcore, it can be, it can be power pop even at times. It can be a lot of different things. And they are uh, a band that, you know, is a lot of different things, but all the time they kick ass. And I'm a huge fan. And so I've always wanted to kind of get the chance to just nerd out and talk to Eric about, you know, coming up in that scene. Like, here's the thing. Cleveland, Ohio, if you haven't picked it up yet on this show, is like another one of those cities that I'm just like fascinated by because there's just so much incredible music that comes out of there. You know, like there's the, you know, my ever dying, undying love, I should say, for integrity and H100s and all things, you know, from that kind of scenes that comes out of those 
bands and before those bands and things like that. But like, here you have another thing that comes out of Cleveland, Ohio, which is the new Bomb Turks. Granted, they really form in Columbus, but everyone's kind of from Cleveland area. And it's just amazing. There's something in the water in that town, you know, gave great rock and roll and it gives great punk rock, great hardcore. I said punk rock really weird there. Anyway, as I said before, I'm a little tired, uh, but I'm going to get up. I'm going to get amped because I'm going to go listen to Destroy Oh Boy, which I still stand by being one of, if not the best 90s hardcore records. I, I still will maintain that. There's, an, there's a breakdown, a mosh part on that record that I think, ooh, ooh, you could, you could cut a rug to that. Um, so I'm going to go listen to that and get myself amped up. But I want you out there in, in podcast land to get ready, sit back, relax, because here is Eric Davidson on Turned Out a Punk. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. Very fun. Thanks a lot. I feel happy to be here and all that crap. Well, as I we were just talking off air, and uh, I, I told you, like, straight up, I think you – you know, New Bomb Turks is one of the most important bands to me in the history of punk, but also just like one of the greatest hardcore punk bands ever. <laughs> well, uh, thanks. I don't know what to say to that, but thank you very much. <laughs> it's very, very nice. Um, yeah, I remember Jim telling me that when when uh, he ran into you. Uh, and where was it again? We just mentioned this. Uh, where did New you York City. From the Turks again? Right, oh, I ran to Jim right. in and France then, and then ran to you in New York. In France. Yeah, and he was like, Jim was like, uh, that Damien from Fucked Up says we had the best hardcore record in the 90s. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> I was like, all right, that was kind of a random thing to hear in the middle of Paris somewhere, but that's pretty cool. So anyway. Well, I, lo- I was lucky enough to grow up in Toronto at the time of Full Blast Records. And oh, yeah, if there's nice. one band that kind of epitomized what that record store was, it, it was you guys, you know? And so I think I was luckily you know, schooled well by Luann and Glenn and Simon Harvey behind the counter there in what records yeah. that I should appreciate. So I, I benefited from that. We were, we were pretty lucky from early on with Toronto cause we had good shows from early on and crowds are always pretty good. I remember playing like, I think it was Danko Jones, like second show or something. They opened up for us and we played, I think the first one was with the space shits. And I think that was one of their first shows. Maybe I was just hanging out with, uh, hanging out with Khan um, at a festival we played in Spain a few weeks ago, Fuzz, Fuzzville Fest. And, um, oh, and by the way, the way that sounded and why I sound like Sylvester the Cat is because I just had some uh, fucking dental surgery. So you will forgive me if I do sound like that. But anyway, Absolutely. Um, so um, thank you. So, uh, yeah, I was hanging out with Khan, and I think he told me that, maybe I'm mistaken, but I think he told me he felt like we were the first sort of real punk band you ever saw live or something maybe besides local bands or something but i was like well you guys already had a band when you played with us he was like yeah but you know i hadn't seen too much and he was 17 or something you know yeah, yeah they were and uh, i remember they they were really that was awesome they were great you know i remember thinking mark looked like you know like the rest of the band had your, your usual sort of good rocker look you know the t-shirt to the tight jeans and mark comes walking in with like a hoodie on and these baggy pants looking like you know he was from a band that was practicing across the street and got mad and quit the band and just walked in and was like can i sing with this band sure you know and uh they were you know great and then obviously kept in touch with them over the years but yeah so every time we went we met new people and there were good zines and stores and you know it was great canadians buy t-shirts too we noticed which is nice so 
Yeah, I think I think at that time, especially, you know, you guys were kind of heralding, you know, at least for bands that were touring and coming to places like this, like a return to to punk, you know, like in, in uh, you know, it was a time of, you know, like a lot of hardcore stuff that I like, but in retrospect was kind of not as steeped in kind of like the, the musical history that the early punk was and, and, and early hardcore was. And I think you guys, you know, like after you guys, you know, in the wake, like bands like the deadly snakes from here <laughs> and, and teen Craig yeah. combo and Danko Jones and all these kind of bands like were there, but you know, you guys were kind of <laughs> the heralds, the John, the Baptists well, of the movement. Wow. That's that's nice um, to hear. Um, sorry for anybody who uh, got in trouble because of all that, but you know it was their choice. So it yes. Was, so um, you know, yeah, we kind of felt like, I mean, we you know, growing up in Cleveland, um, a lot of the bands that I saw from early on when I started going to see bands, it was a really mixed up scene. It was really like. You know, uh, without going into this forever, because you can read it in my book. We never learned. But anyway, um, it's really like a lot of like classic rock in Cleveland at the time that you're really fucking sick and tired of. And oh, my God, why do I have to hear fucking Bruce Springsteen again or Led Zeppelin again? And it was just like really bad classic, classic rock radio shoved down your throat. But really awesome college radio, really great college radio back in like the 80s and and still today in Cleveland. And um, so a lot of the bands that we play, I think what I realized over time was like, it's like a love hate thing. You grew up with all that classic rock in you somewhere and you got sick of it, but then you realize there's years go by, you realize there's stuff you liked, you know, and um, kind of twisted into your music. So there weren't a lot of straight, there were a couple of like straight up kind of hard bands in Cleveland, the idiot humans and um, the dark. And there were some bands that were hardcore bands. Starvation army was another one, mm -hmm. but they weren't, they were a little weird. You know, we always call it the what the fuck factor. A lot of Ohio bands have this like what the fuck weirdness to them that doesn't make sense, you know. Um, and th none of them were just your straight up really angry, all political, moshing only. You know, they were more like guys in like leftover corduroy jeans and, <laughs> you know, like, you know, who just still kind of looked like that. You know, it's always funny when you see those early pictures of hardcore bands and they just, some of them have long hair. And, yeah. you know, we have such this idea now of what hardcore is. But in the early days, it was kind of a weird mash of stuff. And Cleveland was definitely like that. Like, I would see these all day matinees on like a Sunday and it would be a goth band and like a power pop band and like some mod band and death of Samantha, who was like my favorite band back then who were like a kind of a weird punk Roxy music or something. And, and then there'd be hardcore bands. So, I mean, it was kind of all over. So when we got down to Columbus and, we, and, well, we, I guess we don't have to go on all that history until you ask me some more questions. Well, no, yeah, it. we got to start um, this off the way I start them all off because Eric, you're I'm believe me, I, I want to wade into this Cleveland stuff with you big time, but <laughs> how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Well, I think, well, probably the most, I, I actually have a memory. It's a faded and tiny memory, but I have a vague memory of when they did a story on NBC nightly news. I think it was, I was watching our little TV in my parents' bedroom 
and they had a story on this punk from England. It was one of those shit stories, you know? Mm -hmm. And basically, they just showed kids beating the hell out of each other with wacky hair. And, you know, (laughs) didn't really talk about the music at all, of course. And I remember even thinking that. Like, at the end of the report, I remember my dad saying, well, what's the music like? You know, I remember. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, that was kind of weird, right? Because they were were supposedly going to tell us about this new music from England, which, of course, that's all I knew at that point. I would have been nine or something, you know? Mm -hmm. But I have a vague memory of that. And then the next real memory I have is like my brother seeing the clash in the Akron Agora. And I don't remember which tour. It was probably the the um, London Calling tour. And I remember, you know, he had the Led Zeppelins and the Bob Seger records and all that's fine, whatever. He also had a little bit of some of the R&B and stuff. So he had some cool records. Mm-hmm. But um, suddenly he comes home that night um, and I remember we shared a room together, and I remember he walked in. I was just like, how was the show? You know, rubbing my little eyes. And he was like, it was just, uh, you know, he was kind of speechless, you know. And that was after a 40-minute ride from Akron, you know. And uh, and I just go, okay. And the next day I talked to him a little more about it, and he was telling me about how great it was. I'm like, where can I hear this music? And he told me about college radio, and that's when I started listening. I don't know what year that would have been, probably like 81 or something. And I started listening to college radio and it just took off from there. There was a great DJ called Penny Stasek, who you, I believe she's on Facebook. And um, she uh, she's um, she was just amazing. She had this great show and it was on Wednesdays at like midnight. And I that whole summer, I just I would like call her up and be like, what's the Velvet Underground like? And like three songs later, she'd play the Velvet Underground. I'd be like, who are the Buzzcocks? And she'd play the Buzzcocks. So it was literally like that. I mean, that was in one summer. And then we also had a couple other great college stations. And then for that one summer, we had a new wave, like a commercial station, 92 something. And they played a lot of like, I remember they played the first REM single. I remember that the hip tone one, like the, you know, like Radio the very first Europe REM single. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they, and they would play like all kinds of stuff. And we only had it for one year. I remember that. So I kind of <laughs> lucked out all in one year. The rain just kind of came down and, and, uh, I held some buckets out or whatever the fucking metaphor would be. And, uh, and yeah, that's when I really, but those earliest memories are seeing that sex pistols thing. And then my brother coming home from that clash concert and, and me, and then like, I probably picked up a Ramones record that summer. I think the first Ramones album and take it from there, you know, who would have opened for uh, the clash on that show in Cleveland? Do you know, uh, you know, actually, I think it was, uh, I think it was Ital maybe, which was a, mm, it was some reggae band, okay. I think, or no, no, you know, it was fuck. It was Curtis blow. It was oh, fucking wow. Curtis blow. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure it was Curtis blow. I'll ask my brother again, but, and, and get right back to you. But, um, <laughs> yeah. I think it was Curtis blow. And then I remember I saw the clash on their very last tour when it was that cut the crap album, which I still stand by and think is a pretty good record, but the clash like never wants to reissue or anything like that. Yeah. But, um, they had that new band that it was like him and Paul, Joe and Paul Simonon and three new guys. And I remember being awesome, but I think it was like the second show I ever saw and, um, live and, uh, there what Joe Eli was supposed to open this kind of roots rock guy mm-hmm. and he has missed his plane or something and a local reggae band called Ital played and they opened up. Um, so from pretty early on, some weird little things like that. I got a notion of that punk bands could have these kind of, because the clash actually asked for Ital to open. They said, you guys have a local reggae band, you know, <laughs> that's what they wanted, you know? So, but I had, then I had this notion that, and people, however people look at the clash as the years go on, I think they were really important about like showing that 
all this other music could come into your world and you could try at least to put it into your music somehow, you know, yeah, and absolutely. have like an yeah. open minded about shit, you know? So anyway, that's, those were my sort of earliest memories. Were there like, cause obviously like, you know, I'm not obviously, but I've always kind of been one of those people that maintains that kind of punk, you know, really coalesces in Cleveland first, you know, with all those, you know, like rock from the tombs, electric eels, mirrors mm-hmm. and all that kind of first yeah. wave stuff. Were there any remnants yeah. of that by the time you were kind of hearing about this music or is that scene all but dissipated? Well, I mean, you would see, you know, I'm, I started seeing local bands. I mean, I, I saw a couple of big shows like clash and stuff like that in yeah. say like 83 or 84, but, but local bands, I guess 84, 85. And you would, you know, you would see there was a band, um, Home and Garden that Jim Jones was in, if I'm remembering correctly. And I think Alan Revenstein might have played with them a little. Those guys were in Para-Ubu. Yeah. Um, the, I, um, the Dead Boys, I think, did a couple reunions that I wasn't able to make. Um, but, you know, you would sometimes see Cheater Chromatic Show. You'd hear about these things. Um, and then there were, you know, that's not that far removed. You know, we were talking before we went on the air, our time kind of compresses so quickly like mm-hmm. when you think about it you know i was talking about death of samantha and their first record was in 1985 that's only seven years or eight years after the sex pistols album you know yeah. what i mean that's not that's not that long but when you're a kid it's a long fucking time the pistols record seems so old but but um but anyway what the fuck were we just saying about um Oh, uh, yeah. What the hell was I just answering? I already lost We're just talking rights. about the, just the, that scene at that time and kind of the early scene. And what yeah, was yeah, yeah. So there. you would see, so, so you would see some of those guys. And, and again, thinking back, they were probably only in their thirties. It's not like <laughs> they were old men, like coming out with a cane, like once every year to a show. I mean, but, and you, you would hear, uh, the mirrors, I believe I saw some iteration of the mirrors once. Um, and then, there were guys like there was this band, the pink holes who all knew the dead boys guys and they would play out. So you hear little stories and see things. I remember um, one time like Lords in new church played. And um, I remember walking and behind the club, there was this big alley. And I remember looking over and seeing this guy t- take a piss and he had big hair and he was taking this little, taking a leak. I was like, that's Stib Bears. Hey, Stib. And he did one of those, like holding the penis, waving with the other hand. <laughs> It was really nice. So, so that was my nice run in with Stiv there. But, um, and you know, then I had a, um, uh, there was a band called Prison Shake, and all four, they're a great band. You should all look them up. Um, and Robert Griffin, who sang, but mainly was a guitarist and songwriter guy, he later started Scat Records that put out the Guided by Voices stuff and all kinds of other things. Mm-hmm. He, um, he was in Prison Shake, and they were one of my favorite locals. And all those guys were like, either played in other bands or ran local studios or whatever. They all knew their shit and they were probably only about 22, 23 years old, all of them. But to me looked like older, you know, statesmen already. And Robert Griffin was my manager. He would make me really some mixtapes of like X blank X and the ragged bags or, or, you know, the electric eels or whatever. Um, and so that's how I kind of heard about that stuff from him because he was he started playing in bands when he was like 13 14 years old i think he might have even seen uh he might have seen some versions of the pagans or whatever or uh, yeah the pagans and 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 the dead boys so i mean you know he actually had stories and stuff so yeah again you know it's the way that like it seems so long ago and you're growing up in cleveland the funny thing was always like again i go over this in my book but um the funny thing was always like Cleveland just loves a bag on itself. You know, it's one of those towns that likes to put itself down a lot and it's almost proud of itself for being 
a crappy place, you know, <laughs> yeah. and it's not really that crappy. I actually love Cleveland. It's got a great musical history, but people love to bag on it just so you stay the fuck away from wanting to move there, you know, yeah. kind of. And, and, um, and a, a lot of, a lot of people like to, to, to bag on, on the history of it. Um, but oh, fuck, I'm losing my fucking train of thought again, but, um, but they really, you know, you re- Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to say, I didn't mean to in- step on your thought, but I just think like, yeah, like people love to bag on it maybe internally too, but it, when you're talking specifically about punk and hardcore and the history of that, like my No, I know God, what I was going to say. Punch Can I jump in that for a minute? Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the thing that was funny, what I was going to say, sorry, and what, it is true. And what I was going to say was that there was no respect for any kind of new music. Classic rock was so ingrained. Cleveland was about the 15th largest radio market in the country at that time, maybe bigger. And, you know, it already was priding itself on, even by the end of the 70s, Cleveland kind of thought of itself as like – oh, you know, like, we're this big radio market and, like, David Bowie and Roxy Music and even the Velvet Underground, like, it was one of the few towns outside of New York or L.A. or Chicago that any of those bands would come through in the early days. And and Lou Reed loved playing Cleveland. And, like, Elvis Presley, the first, like, place he ever play, played above the Mason-Dixon line was Cleveland. And Moondoggy Ball with Alan Freed in the 1950s. You know, like, Cleveland yeah. already thought that it had this kind of staid rock and roll history. And the Raspberries were kind of a really great metaphor of how Cleveland did not have any good history anymore. Because the Raspberries were great and they couldn't get that huge number one hit that they wanted, you know, that they mm-hmm. should have had. Mm-hmm. But so by the early 70s, Cleveland was pretty fucking dead economically and musically and everything. And any of these new bands that were rock, you know, were, were living in these shitty warehouses down in the flats, like at Rocket from the Tombs and the Mirrors guys and stuff. Nobody gave a fuck about that in Cleveland. It was like the few bars that were left just had cover bands and stuff like that you know so by the time i came around that there was a slow but sure second wave of people who kind of embraced that stuff like robert griffin and and people who kind of knew about the pagans and shit like that and some of the pagans guys were around i didn't know them personally but but um you know yo that guy oh fucking mike Ed, mike hudson was here last night at that show oh really you know and um so i saw a version of the pagans yeah because they came um, back throughout back the then, 80s you know? right yeah, they would do a show periodically, and and uh, so I saw one of those, and that was cool. And so you know, you'd hear about it, but it was just like, oh, that was that local band from eight years ago, or seven years ago, or ten years ago, and they put some singles out, right? And then you would sort of pick up this information. But what I was going to say too is that Cleveland putting itself down was always like you go to record stores, and that was the era where I th- probably Cleveland was the only town like this. But anything on indie labels was usually thrown in the import section, you know? <laughs> so like, it's like that just here because it was a. Yeah, it's just because it wasn't on Warner Brothers and A&M or whatever. Yeah. It, it would be in the import section. So you'd find like Para Ubu and, and Pagan's Records and stuff like that <laughs> kind of tucked away in the corner. It's like, these are Cleveland bands. Why are, you know, why? And you hear about like um, the Electric Eel single coming out five years after they broke up on a British label. You know, yeah. it just be like, and that was a very Cleveland thing because after that initial classic era of rock and roll, uh, Cleveland radio just became so ensconced in itself and the old bands, probably a lot of the country, but that new bands had a hard time, you know, and by the time the bands that I started seeing, like the hardcore bands and death of Samantha or bands like that prison shake, you knew like, no one's going to give a fuck. Like, you know, we're not going to get signed to some big label. The local radio is not going to play us except college radio. So those kind of notions of, 
that old Cleveland, should we worry about getting press coverage or whatever anymore, we're gone. And it led to just really open, weird, you know, there was only about three consistent clubs Mm -hmm. that would book all this stuff, at least that I could go see. Um, And you also had like, it was a lot of it wasn't all ages. Some of it was, and some of it wasn't. So you learned how to like, have some friend put the X on your hand and sneak in a back door or whatever, you know, which I think really built a lot of like character in me, you know, how to sneak past people and all that. And then when we first started touring out West, we would go to like these places in San Francisco and they'd be like, Oh, we have this great all ages place for the last 10 years. I'm like, Oh, all right. Well, I don't like any of the bands that came out of that all ages place. But anyway, I kid, I kid, I kid. Well, before we get to that touring and, and, realizing that the punk scene was not necessarily the same as Cleveland's, which is incredible, like the stuff that came out. But like that scene, Valentine's Day Records label, I think I guess that's indicative of kind of what you're describing earlier on about Cleveland. Like there's just so many different styles of bands that came out on that label. Yeah, and I think that you just I, – I think that you get to a point back then at least, you know, you always have to predicate everything with a pre-internet, you know. Yeah. But yeah. even just – pre-distribution really i mean everything was so like you know if you could find another band that like didn't make fun of you if you said you liked the velvet underground or never heard of them or if you said you liked the dead boys and they knew who the hell that was (laughs) okay and so a lot of bands just did bills together because Hey, you're another weirdo band. You know what? what I, I notice a lot of my friends often talk about like it was a lot easier back then to notice somebody ab- across a bar or across your high school hallway and go, oh, that person might be into the clash, you know? Mm. And now everyone has their own sort of freak look in their own way, you know? But back then, I remember literally being called because I wore Converse tennis shoes and a Mr. Bill t shirt. I mean, I remember that very distinctly, you know? And, you know, just because I wore vaguely old looking clothes or something you know and so if you found people like that then you you knew to sort of gravitate towards them and i think the bands worked in the same way and again since there were only maybe three or four people that were or people three or four uh clubs that were going to put these things on consistently well if you want to play a sunday all ages show and there happens to be a goth band and, you know, a solo acoustic guy and whatever, I guess we're going to go play that show, you know. <laughs> so, um, and I like that. You had a weird mishmash of stuff. And the house show thing wasn't really getting going yet, like by the late 80s in Cleveland. There were there were some cool outdoor things. I remember there was this thing called Junk, and it was in the junkyard in Parma, actually, my shitty white flight suburb that I grew up in. It was a junk junkyard and they had some flatbed trucks and had bands and poets and stuff on them all day. And that was pretty cool. So they had interesting stuff like that in Cleveland too. You know, it was a very like, you know, just a weird town back then. But, uh, you know, what was the first show you went to? Like earlier on, you said the second show was a clash. What was the first one? Oh, well, before, before that, too, I just want to say that St. Valentine's kind of came out of all that. St. Okay. Valentine's was the guys from Death of Samantha and this other guy. And then, um, you know, they were friends of the New Salem Witch Hunters, who sounded like a 60s garage band, um, who were really, really into Anne Frank. Um, there was, uh, you know, and then they were also friends with the Reactions, who were like a mod band that kind of really liked the jam. So it was like all kinds of stuff. And so St. Valentine's worked a little bit to get their singles and their records distributed. And then when people like Gerard Cosley in New York at Homestead started writing them up a little bit, they were able to get a little bit of out of town attention. But another thing about Cleveland bands thinking that no one's ever going to give a fuck about them is that a lot of these bands just never really 
got their asses together to try to tour, you know, mm-hmm. that was kind of a, the one downfall Cleveland bands. I think to this day is, is there's just this feeling like no one's going to care. Why should we even, and also it's still kind of a working class town. So people couldn't just like grab their dad's gold card and go, you know, buy a van and tour for four months. You know, they had to work or finish community college or whatever, you know? So they tended to just play around the region. But, um, so that's kind of what happened too, is it became very provincial in its own, in its own way. So, um, anyway, Oh, first show I ever saw, uh, was the, the romantics actually, <laughs> the, oh, that's awesome. all the Detroit power pop band. Yeah. They were just on that crest or whatever they're, um, right after what I like about you and right before, um, talking in your sleep you know Mm. so they didn't the hair wasn't quite as big just yet (laughs) um and you know who opened up you might know this name the boys brigade whoa that name at all yeah they were a canadian band that was produced by getty lee and they fucking sounded like that sorry if that sounds bad but um they were not very good but technically they were the first live band i ever saw and they opened up for the romantics and i didn't like them um but the romantics were really fun and then Probably only about a year and a half later, though I was younger, so it felt a lot later. But only about a year and a half later, I was seeing the Hoodoo Groovers at a bar, and I was all excited, you know, and I knew the Romantics played that night at a bigger place in Cleveland. And I remember it was one of the first times I thought to myself, like, Eric, you're starting to choose sides here, you know, like I, I, instead of instead of going for the band that already gave me a good time, but now they're kind of, I went for the newer slightly weirder band at a smaller club you know yeah. and so i'm i'm watching the hoodoo I'm, I'm ready for the hoodoo gurus go on and i go in to take a piss and i'm standing at the urinal and next to me is the basis of the hoodoo gurus pissing i'm like this is exactly why i picked the bar <laughs> bands you know because this would never happen at that big uh, theater i would have gone to you know so yeah. i'm pissing next to the hoodoo gurus basis i'm like this is awesome and after peeing, we had a slight chat and it was very nice and and they're on, and they're great. So who should walk in while the Hoodoo Gurus are on? Because you can't miss them because they have all leather, black leather outfits on with giant hair. The Romantics walk in. Yeah. Pretty funny. So the Romantics go up to the bar, and I go up, probably not to get a beer because I was underage. But I went up, and for the first of many, many times in my life, I placed my triple E wide foot clearly in my mouth. And I went up to the singer of the Romantics. I'm like, oh, man, you're you guys in the Romantics, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, I was gonna. I, I saw you guys like a year or so ago. It was fucking awesome. I was gonna go tonight, but you know, I was. I just. I'm seeing the who <laughs> You know, and, and, it was, and they just kind of laughed. But it was such a, a little fanboy. Like I'm like, did I just piss those guys off? And then I also really quickly realized, fuck that. Who cares? I'm having fun. The Hoodoo Gurus are great. Yeah. And I went back up front and watched the rest of the Hoodoo Gurus, and they were fucking awesome. That's awesome. So you're super young to be getting into this stuff. Were like your peers kind of into it too, or are you like kind of standing alone at this point? Eh, a little alone. I also didn't have a license till I was probably thirty. So that in America makes you a freak in and of itself. I don't. I still so know how to drive, Eric. I always say it's like a lead singer thing. You know, yeah. I, I heard Jim Morrison never had a license. Ian Curtis never had a license. Iggy Pop never had a license until a few years ago. Uh, Ron House of the Great Plains and Thomas Jefferson Slave Apartment yeah. didn't have a license for a long time. Um, but anyway, so it's a lead singer thing. So anyway, um, baritone lead singer. Anyway, um, It's the world's safer so, without us uh, driving, I think. That's the, that's the ultimate takeaway. <laughs> much, much safer. Anybody who's been in the car with me would tell you the same. Same. So um, half the reason I continue to live in New York is because, you know, I love subways but um (laughs) so uh 
So, uh, yeah, so there were, I was in high school and I was in a Western suburb. So I was a good 15 to 20 minute drive from any of the good clubs that had shows consistently. And luckily, um, well, my brother was into cool stuff and he was still around town, my older brother. Um, and I had another friend from high school. Um, and then I met my friend Maria, who I'm still friends with her to this day. She had great taste. She had a car. We always ran around to shows like crazy for years in a row. And that was about it. A couple of my other good friends, I had maybe two other friends that kind of like, it was a classic thing. Like I would be like, hey, Prince is playing fucking music hall, which by the way, Trump is going to come to Cleveland and give a fucking speech at the music hall. That's where I saw the clash. It's like I saw an REM show there. It's just like I can't fucking believe Donald Trump's going to stand on the same stage that the fucking clash stood on. But anyway, um, so uh, Maria, but Maria and I would go to see a ton of shows. So luckily I had her as a good friend. And then, uh, again, a couple friends that, like, I would tell them, hey, Prince is going to play at the music hall. We, we should go. And they're like, what the hell's Prince? I'm like, no, you'll like it. It's fine. You'll like it. And then, of course, a year later, he was playing in, like, a giant basketball arena, and everybody wanted to go. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, I had I had those, a couple of those kind of friends. I would tell them, no, nah, you two's okay. I mean, this is a long time ago. Um, and uh, they'd be like, oh, I never heard of them. And then a year later, when they were playing the Cleveland Coliseum, then they wanted to go see you two. I would rather see who to gurus when they're six hours at a bar than if they come back to a giant theater so i learned that from really early on i just i liked going to weirdo smaller bars and clubs and my parents were cool about that because back then cleveland like a lot of urban centers you know your grandparents would be like why the hell you want to go down there there's nothing down there it's dead down there you know and i used to live around there and it's horrible you know and um that's how it was in Cleveland. People would be like, you went downtown. That's weird. And, but that's where the shit was. That was to me, it was interesting, you know? So I had just a couple of friends. Yeah. It wasn't like, a. There was no sending somebody a YouTube clip and convincing them to go see a live band, you know. I still think that might be a hard sell to this day with, with sending people YouTube clips and getting them on board with uh, – maybe not <laughs> yeah, Prince anymore. They just, say, they just say, well, I just saw them on YouTube. Why would I go yeah, spend money to leave my house to go see them? Yeah. yeah. Um, were, like, cause there's a lot of punk bands and hardcore kids that eventually come out of that suburb, right? Like, were they, were you just like a little bit ahead of that kind of next wave? I think Cleveland itself in the early 90s, see, I had moved to Columbus by 87. Came back to Cleveland here or there um, during the summer for a couple of years. But for the most part, I moved to Columbus in 87. And I think there were bands um, that were, more active in Cleveland in the very early nineties. We actually didn't play with too many of them. And I think they were a little more, a little more active. And, um, so that thing was definitely after I left, you know, but bands like the dark and idiot humans and bands like that, like I'm talking, that's like 85, 86 when I was going to those all ages shows and stuff. I never really knew those guys personally that close, you know, um, I would see them at shows, but you know, um, and I would see their bands, but, um, then I would hightail it back to the, the west side. And I think a lot of them lived more like on the near west side, I mean, without going into Cleveland geography, but lived down by those clubs I was mentioning earlier. They either lived around there or they lived on the east side of Cleveland. And the whole scene kind of went from people living out on the east side over to the west side um, in my area, you know, where more more bands were moving into housing around the east, uh, the west side. So, um, 
yeah, anyway, I mean, uh, I just, like I said, I was out of there by 90, by 87 and he went down to Columbus and it was all, Columbus was always more of a kind of an indie rock town, sort of, you know, I don't know if you want to go into that yet or keep talking about Cleveland. I can always talk about Cleveland, but well, I, I guess the only thing I'd want to talk about is, yeah, you brought up the dark a couple times and I think, you know, they've now a little more appreciated, but still one of the more underrated hardcore bands of that, you know, early period of hardcore like they're so fucking yeah. phenomenal and i never saw them live that's just from like the yeah. recordings cleveland also had i mean some of these memories fade but like there was this band shadow of fear that played who would like come out with like a burning cross and capes and stuff you know so it was like shows were just so mixed up with stuff and there was always a little little edge of goth kind of in a lot of cleveland bands <laughs> yeah. i think i'm my one of i'm like this is some genius theory like e equals mc squared or something but i think a lot of it is just how shitty the weather was in cleveland it, you know it gets cloudy around early november and it kind of stays that way till about late march you know mm-hmm. and a, a lot of bands just kind of hunker down in their house and cheap town to live in so like beer's cheap and all that kind of thing and but there but goth always had a real following in cleveland it was always on college yeah. radio there were, you know, there were goth clubs as far back as I can remember, you know, and, and, and there was always this edge of like the chorus pedal, you know, those hardcore bands and the, <laughs> you know, in the late eighties that had chorus pedals, you know, yes. why do you have that? You know, and, um, you know, it was like that kind of thing. There was always a tiny bit of, and that really sort of, well, dark, uh, you know, yep. edge and fear and like future fear and, and not just a generic anger at the government or fuck my parents. There wasn't a lot of that, but a genuine kind of like dark fear you know just about about the future and reagan and nuclear war and then you know cleveland also i mean to overuse a now kind of mythologized image of cleveland it really was kind of sooty and dirty um the factories had kind of there were still some working rubber and and car factories in cleveland not as many but down in the flat if you did go down into that part of town which was right down by the water where where the water was still really shitty in lake erie and everything and it was still sooty and gross down there and if you did go to some of those clubs like Peabody's was a club that used to have a lot of bands i saw the replacements and dream syndicate and all wow. kind of bands all the way up to rocket from rocket from the crypt and I saw tons of bands or Pixies on their first tour through. I saw a lot of bands over the years mm-hmm. and they used to have tons of shows down there, but you know, it was kind of hard to park and it was the sort of scary and weird. And, and you know, it was, it was just kind of beat up and there'd be like shitty wannabe, like kind of frat sports bars that would come and go. And it, it was just, you know, kind of a dying town, you know, that every, every couple of months would be like, Cleveland's back, you know, and then that, <laughs> you know, that, that would go away. And, and, you know, I'm one of my favorite things is when I was a kid, Cleveland tried to, um, um, have this the, the founding the city fathers and chamber of commerce came up with this great multi-million dollar ad campaign that was going to bring cleveland back and i'm not making this up the the phrase was new york might be the big apple but cleveland's a plum <laughs> now i don't know why this is literally millions of dollars to spend on this and so you'd have these bumper stickers cleveland's a plum and not realizing of course that plums make you shit right like if you eat a lot of plums you shit a lot you know and why no one ever put that two and two together but it was such a great i wish i had the t-shirt of it they should really bring it back and that was one of those proud moments i'm like only cleveland could come up with this really dumb fucking ad campaign trying to say that it's back you know yeah. and i love that kind of stuff about cleveland but i actually love cleveland and it's great and i actually think it is sort of back but i don't know what back would mean exactly but um so um but yeah, so, so uh, Jesus, I, don't know. Oh, I was just going to say that 
Cleveland really did have kind of a sooty, dirty, weird thing about it. And I think by the time the very end of the 80s and early 90s, I think bands did were embracing that kind of 70s mythology of the Rocket from the Tombs guys. You know, Peter Laffner passed away and I actually did meet his wife and she would be around once in a blue moon. You'd have people like Jane Scott, who was this old old reporter, music reporter, who like interviewed the Beatles when they came over in 64 and, and interviewed Sammy Davis and like all these famous people through the years. But she still would go out to shows. I remember seeing the Dead Kennedys and she was sitting on the side of the stage next to the house amp. Like a little old lady, nice lady who wore pearls and dresses and shit. And she would sit there with her spiral notebook taking notes at a fucking Dead Kennedy show, you know? <laughs> so, and she would be around and she was kind of a reminder of these like Oh, yeah, like she saw the choir and she saw the raspberries and, you know, and, and she was nice. She was approachable. But then there was also this guy, um, everyone called him Lizard. I'm not making this up. He was a working policeman. He had a leather police jacket on with his badge and they would send him to hardcore shows because everyone liked him because he fucking, he looked like Lux Interior. He had big <laughs> black fucking hair. He would wear Elvis glasses and he, he had a cramps patch on the back of his fucking police jacket. <laughs> and he kidding? was a fucking... It was amazing. And they would send him to the shows because all the kids like respected him and wouldn't do shit if he told them to calm down, you know? Yeah. And it was like shit like that. It was just a really neat mix of, of weirdos. But they were all sort of reminders of – and, you know, the cramps were very popular in Cleveland and there was a pride in that that like – yeah, the cramps were based in L.A. and everything. But we always thought of them as like an Ohio band, you know, well, the, the gothy of that, kind of thing you know? too. They're kind of like a goth yeah. vibe. Yeah. Band as totally, well. totally. There was a band called um, Venus Envy, who I loved, and nobody really remembers, but they were always on these bills in the 80s. They were a three-piece, if memory serves. They had one EP, and they were kind of a cramps-type band, and they mm. were really great, and they would play on all those bills, too. And there was a band called Terrible Parade, um, who did like an REM-ish kind of early 80s college rock, but gloomy kind of, you know. So everything always had kind of this little touch of gray clouds, you know, well, and that's how I think the hardcore bands in Cleveland. The yeah. first thing that jumped out in my mind wasn't, wasn't leather jacket spikes and bald head, but sort of like working class dudes that were just genuinely fucking pissed you know? <laughs> yeah. and and um usually had kind of shitty equipment and i didn't know shit about equipment yet but from what i could tell you know it was beat up or whatever um and anyway so you would see that in the midst of all these other kind of bands that were playing so it was a neat holds. mix so none of them made that one that one there was no one solid band that made the one solid impression i mean death of samantha did for me but there was all kinds of stuff to pick from so sorry go ahead no no i was just gonna say that, I, yeah, that, too much. no 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 please believe me this is awesome um but that, <laughs> that holds right up until you know bands like integrity and ringworm you know having that yeah. goth of yeah. gothic kind of like feel like they don't sound like other kind of tougher guy bands from that you know 90s period yeah, see, and that's the thing. Those bands, I believe we did play with Integrity once. But see, those kind of bands are really coming out by the time I was out of out of Cleveland. Yeah. You know, so that era. And then by the time we got in the early 90s, there were bands like Craw. And actually, there was a band from Columbus called Eric's Mother that ended up moving up to Cleveland. And those bands were a little more of that sludgy kind of, you know, 90s. I don't want to say grunge, but that more kind of amphetamine reptile kind of thing, like in that vein, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, again, we weren't really, by that time, you, you know, well, again, we, I guess we can get into this, but we were already like so enmeshed in our kind of 
kind of college radio head people who just always want we always wanted to play with different kinds of bands you know yeah. but i guess we can get into that but yeah, as we can geographically make our way south in the state of ohio well i guess before we leave like had you played in any bands in cleveland like had you tried doing music before you went to columbus <laughs> no i it was i one of the things i'm i'm grateful as fuck to this day um i was very fortunate to meet I mean, when I met Jim at the dorm and at Ohio State, he had played in a, um, a kind of a cover, some originals, I think, uh, just kind of fun party band at home a few times. Matt had played in some bands um, in in Medina, Ohio, before I met him a little bit. And Bill, our drummer, had actually played with – oh, fuck, I should be remembering this. It's terrible. But Bill had played in a hardcore band. Oh, he played with Starvation Army a little bit, I think, Oh wow, well, in Cleveland. A little bit. Yeah, Starvation Army, uh, I'm no expert, but I mean, I think that they went through a few different iterations. Doug Gillard from uh, Death of Samantha was in the earliest version of of Starvation Army when they were a three-piece. But um, anyway, Bill had actually played on stages, like at bars, I think, yeah, a little yeah. bit. So he had a tiny bit more experience than us. But essentially, I like to think it was – I mean, I definitely had none. I mean, the only thing close to a band I came to – I remember I was at Maria at this coffee shop, and there was a flyer. It's hilarious. I was kind of like seeing all these bands and getting into bands and buying magazines and college radio and buying tons of records. And I saw this flyer. It was hilarious. I wish I would have taken it. But it said, um, looking to form either – <laughs> a Smiths cover band, parentheses, this charming band, or an REM cover band, parentheses, seven Chinese brothers. And those are going to be the t- – and it's like, if you want to try out – so it was a liar that cut up the little phone number on the bottom, you know. So I ripped one off, and I was going to call the guy. I'm like, well, yeah, what the hell? You know, if I'm going to – try to be in a band i'll just be in a cover band you know first and see what it's like and then i'm like this is ridiculous i'm not gonna be you know and then that probably a year before i moved to columbus and then i met jim at the dorms and and uh and uh you know amazing to me because you're like one of my like all-time front people and i think you're such a natural front person that you didn't have that emptiness in your soul that all us front people have that you need to fill at a well, young age. Well, well, I'm 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 probably not um, going to surprise anybody by saying that I was. Well, I, I was in choir in high school, so that's when I. And the thing is, I went to this all guys high school for two years, all guys Catholic high school, way out on the east side, and they lost money for the van that used to pick us straggling west siders up. So suddenly, I had to go to the public school right down the street. Now, being raised in a Catholic school um, my whole life, of course, I was told I would burn in hell if I went to a public school. But of course, I went to the public school and maybe I'll still burn in hell. I don't know. But I met a wider range of people. I met girls, which was nice. And I was able to go into choir and I did that. And then I was in something called Entertainment Company where we did wacky jazz hand singing shit. And um covers of songs for you know uh shows little shows we put on for local retirement homes and stuff so i was in one of those things right and i thought that i would maybe be i thought it might be an actor or something i'll go into acting because i was in some plays in high school and stuff but i was obviously music was my main thing and writing too i always i like to write from about i don't know sixth grade or something so yeah i just i really didn't meet anybody there was i guess there was a friend of mine um bill he uh he was a decent drummer and him and i would sit around in the basement and kind of goof off and and like make up some goofy song and like just kind of i would just be yelling stuff in a mic but that was about it i mean that seriously was just goofy like making little tapes for 
for fun between me and my friend. It was nothing like we weren't trying to form a band, you know what I mean? But I guess it gave me a notion. I just never had the one thing about me and Maria hanging out was we would go to shows in Cleveland all the time, but usually we'd go home right after because either we had to work or go to school or whatever, you know, and we weren't really big drinkers either. So it wasn't like, let's keep the party going. Sometimes we did. But um, so I didn't, a lot of the musicians in town who I might've met and maybe formed a band with, they all lived mostly on the East side or pretty far away from where I live. Parm, the, the few musicians in Parma, I think who wanted to be in a band were all in death of Samantha. So <laughs> I, um, I just, you know, I, I didn't really meet anybody who like, Hey, I got a guitar. You want to jam? Like I just didn't, you know? And then the second I get to Ohio state, you know, I was very fortunate that actually, um, we made like a late payment or something. And so I got put in temporary housing in one of the dorms. My first year at Ohio state, I was already almost a junior. Well, I was like a sophomore in college and I walked past, then I got put in a dorm room and I walked past and saw Jim sitting there and in one of the suites, you know, it was like a suite of four dorm rooms and I saw him sitting there and he had some, cool band pictures on the wall and i just struck up a conversation with him if my dad would have paid one of the bills on time might have never met jim you know (laughs) so it was literally like that kind of serendipitous crap and um i yeah you know and even jim didn't even he played a little bit of guitar but there was a guy in our dorm that could play guitar and taught jim a few chords jim's parents bought him a guitar and it went from there but but yeah i never i never was uh able to really i wasn't really trying to get anything going when i was living in cleveland still because i just didn't meet anybody who had you know a bass amp sitting in their basement or whatever you know so had you like done any zines because you know obviously you go on to become like as i was telling you off air one of my favorite music writers um had you like written for any fanzines or tried to do fanzines earlier on not not really well i made my own uh, uh i had one called stranded around I think we did three issues, <laughs> but that was when I was already pretty ensconced in Columbus. That was probably like 95 to 98, somewhere around there. Yeah. I did a few issues with my girlfriend back then and some friends. Um, I thought about trying to find them and put them together and print up some or something, but I'd that was it. about it. I wrote when I, <laughs> what I started doing was I, uh, I said lucky things happen. Like uh, my friend, Steve, who I mentioned earlier who I met in high school and was into some cool stuff. He, um, uh, he knew this guy at work and he worked at some grocery store and this guy wrote for the Cleveland scene magazine, which was one of the weekly papers there, you know? And he, he said, Oh, you want to write some stuff? I'm like, uh, sure. Yeah. I'd like to write some record reviews or whatever. And I remember the first thing I ever really wrote in that vein was <clears throat> the Lou Reed's New York album came out. So this would have been, I guess, 88, mm-hmm. 89, whatever year that record came out, 88, I think. And, um, the editor was like, uh, here, take this record, write a review for it. And this was literally, I had to take the bus downtown. I went into the offices. He let me look through the records. I could pick out what I wanted. I would go home. I would type out the review, take it back on the bus downtown to him and give him a typed out review. So <clears throat> I went and I wrote a review for Lou Reed's uh, New York album. And he, the editor liked it and he printed it. And that was like, boom. You know, I started <clears throat> writing for the local weekly paper that mm-hmm. had kind of a most musicians in town had kind of a love hate, but I remember feeling proud because Crocus Behemoth, you know, David Thomas from Para Ubu yeah. used to write for the scene magazine back in the seventies. Seventies were kind of the, the sort of artsy heyday of the scene magazine, but I think it's still around actually. And um, so I started writing for them a little bit and then I was already in Columbus then. So 
I would sort of send them record reviews or I would um, be home in Cleveland and see a concert and write a review for them or do an interview with a band. I remember my first interview I ever did was with Robin Hitchcock. So it was like over the phone from England, you know? So it was like early on, rather than like a local, I had friends who had fanzines. I mean, there was a zine called um, Negative Print that the bass player who ended up in Gaunt, um, him and a guy, bass player who was in Death of Samantha, and some other people worked on a fanzine called Negative Print. So there were some other zines in Cleveland too, but... um, I didn't really start. I suddenly was just writing for this weekly paper, and then when I got to Columbus, I was able to finagle a little bit of writing for the weekly paper there too. So it was, that was kind of the tracks that I got onto, you know. But of course, I've written stuff here and there for fanzines over the years, yeah. You know, for friends and shit, and out of town here and there. But I, I only did that one, my own, my own for like about a year or so, like three issues. So. Were you a record collector because you guys are, you know, you know, so music literate as a band and the covers you guys do like you know it's it's like some record nerd shit like who was the record <laughs> yeah, nerd yeah. in the band or was it all pretty much all yeah we all i mean um like collecting collecting probably matt but we all bought we all bought a lot of records we all listen to stuff and i always i always say too like <clears throat> one, one of the things about when we all met we, we all, well at least me matt and him all met at wosr excuse me <clears throat> which was the old student-run college radio station, Ohio State, which is long gone. But we all met through that. Mm. Um, well, I mean, I met Jim in the dorm, but then we started going over. Next to the dorm was where the radio station was. And we went over there, and that's how we met Matt. And then he knew Bill from the dorm that he lived in. And I had this other Cleveland guy, also kind of weird that all of us were from the greater Cleveland area. But um, So we all had kind of similar tastes. But through college radio, you know, we were all college radio DJs. We all knew musicians back in Cleveland who had already gone through, like, the bad contract ringer, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And, like, so we already kind of had notions about, eh, watch it with, like, getting a manager or instantly signing to a label or whatever because we were already hearing horror stories. And growing up in Cleveland, you hear a lot of that because Cleveland really is a big music town. So those kind of stories, and this is going way into the 90s, but when you hear all these bands that got ripped off in the 90s and the whole alternative rock signing frenzy, I always felt like, how stupid do you have to be? Like, we've been hearing these stories since the 1950s, you know, and you're still getting ripped off by a major label. It's like, but... We were nerds about it. We read all the fanzines. We read all the magazines. We bought tons of records. And then when we moved to Columbus and met people like Ron House, who had already been on Homestead and Scrawl, a great band Scrawl, they were already on Rough Trade Records and had some problems with Rough Trade. And the Gibson Brothers were on Homestead. And, you know, we already knew bands. So, Death of so yeah, we were record. Yeah, Death of Samantha was on Homestead. A lot of, there were actually a lot of Cleveland bands on Homestead. Yeah. And so, Good and bad stories about all that stuff, you know, mostly mm-hmm. good with Homestead. But I mean, but, you know, we already kind of felt, you know, you know, like we we weren't like the wide 17, 18 year olds that, you know, you know, we already kind of were we were record nerds. We knew a lot of record shit, um, bought a lot of records, knew a lot of bands who had already toured and put out records. And then we were really in college radio, too. I was interviewing bands on the college radio station. So it felt pretty seasoned by the time it started. You know, I may as well have been in a band before before New Bomb Turks, you know, mm-hmm. but I was just very fortunate to meet people that I'm still friends with and still I mean, I don't really hear from the drummer much anymore, but um, 
still friends with the Sam who came later on drums and we're all great friends and still play once in a while. So I was just fortunate because over the years, you know, and you know, of course, anybody who's hung out with musicians or go to see bands, I mean, a lot of people's first bands don't last, you know, or, you know, even their third band or their best band lasted two years or so I was very fucking fortunate. So that I found people could put up with me talking so much. Well, it it (laughs) took me eight bands to want to been fucked up. You know, and that's... Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and like, and those were, you know, uh, not not that those bands thought they were all going to make it or anything like that or do anything, right. but like, I just always just been in different bands, you know, and that's why, you know, it, it's so amazing that, yeah, as you say, you guys would all find each other and this is what would come out. Like, were you all kind of already into the same stuff when you met up? Kind of, yeah, because like, um, well, Jim and I, so when we met... um very similar suburban Cleveland guys. Um, you know, I'm obviously probably more loudmouth one, but I mean, we were similar in what we liked. Like when I saw him sitting in his dorm room, he had a picture on the wall of the replacements and that's what got me to, uh, walk in. He had a picture of the replacements and a picture of, uh, of, um, hello, what the fuck? Uh, uh, Peter Gabriel on okay. the wall. And I remember, I remember I was like, I was like, well, one out of two ain't bad or something like, that. <laughs> you know, some stupid icebreaker line. And, um, and we got chatting. And so, um, we were similar kind of dudes like that. Um, and we, I like, he's like, Oh, you saw who's screwed That's cool. I wasn't able to go to the last show. And then they broke up and, you know, stories like that. I'm like, Oh, you know, death of Samantha. And you know, it was like that kind of thing. He, mm-hmm. he lived on the far East side. So he saw bands more in Kent, Ohio, even in Akron. And I saw more bands on the West side, but we had seen a lot of the same bands and kind of a running joke with us that even after all these years, some show will come up and Matt will be like, Oh, you were at that show. I was at that show, you know? So we just all were in the same scene, just didn't, know it and so we all met down in columbus you know and like i was trying to allude to before is like you know you mentioned if a band if a band was successful and i think we all also from an early early stage had a general sort of unspoken idea of what success would even mean you know it was very like hey let's put a single out okay hey crypt wants to do an album i can't fucking believe that that's crazy you know let's do an album but you know probably nobody will buy it and then we'll just move on and then it's like hey we toured europe and it went great i guess we should tour this fall too you know we always did it in kind of six month increments you know and before you know it that was five years you know and we were gonna sign to epitaph and had to make that big decision if we're gonna sign a contract or not you know and then really honestly that was like when it was like okay this is really serious because we're saying for the next few years of our lives we're committed to this but we all knew like i think that we all had a general understanding that you know we didn't think we were going to be like a top 10 band that was going to get a million dollar contract or something you know it wasn't like that at all we all had very like i said we all knew bands in cleveland that we loved and were some of our favorite bands that no one ever heard of like death of samantha or like new salem witch hunters or the mice we all love the mice yeah you know? and it's like nobody gave a fuck no one knew who the hell mice were but to us they got records out and they got to play a lot and they inspired us so like i'm not trying to sound corny but that's kind of what like That'd be nice if we could do that, you know. And so we all kind of had a similar vision, you know. So well, the Mice are a great example of a band that, yeah, like is incredible. Like, how has that band not been sort of like so? Up again? It's so weird. It's, it's completely weird. And well, I know a lot of labels. Let's just put it that way. That I've I've tried to help, and other people have tried to track down Bill Fox and just get him to 
somehow, like Scat actually put out a mice compilation CD, I want to say maybe it was 98. Mm-hmm. And I remember Robert telling me, he's like, you know, uh, Bill Fox is like a really creative, interesting guy. And he's like the Brian Wilson of late 80s Cleveland or whatever. But yeah. he's just hard to work with. And, um, you know, he that's fine. He doesn't have to do anything. You know, no. it's his life. But like when they did that compilation, it was like, he gave him, he said, well, I want you to master two songs off the vinyl and then these two songs off of original tapes and then that one off of a single, but the B-side off of a different tape, you know, and Robert was like, okay, whatever. And that's why that CD kind of has a weird sound to it and it went out of print pretty quick. And then ever since then, I know a lot of labels that you probably would know too who would love and have oh, been yeah. trying to track him down and agree to do a full, complete reissue of all their shit and it's just really hard. You know, I mean, you can all look up the mice online and see the stories, but I just remember them as he, for anybody who knows or cares, Bill Fox and the mice have become, I don't want to say tragic because they're all still alive and everything, but I mean, a sort of sad story of a lost band that should have been really much more well known. Mm -hmm. But my memories of them were, they were fucking awesome live. They were like a weird mix of like the drunken Midwest nuttiness of the replacements with like, the kind of songwriting or, or playing chops of like the jam mixed with like this kind of pop songwriter guy, but played kind of fast. I mean, they, and they were a three piece they, they would be naked. Sometimes they get naked on stage. I mean, they were just complete. Like I said, like one of those Cleveland bands, it's just like, what the fuck? Like it just didn't, it didn't make sense when you actually listen to that scooter album where there are French horns and they sound like this beautiful pop band. They, I mean, they were just really interesting. And that's what we try. I'd like to think we, we carried some of that Cleveland shit with us in the new bomb Turks is just like, don't be afraid to, you know, add some shit to your music and, you know, you don't have to explain to people that you were listening to, you know, the ghetto boys or, or Frank Sinatra in the tour van that day, you know, you just do it anyway. I don't know. Fucking talking shit. No, but I, I, I think you're right. (laughs) Like you guys definitely like, and I think that, data panic scene too like embodies the experimentation that punk can become like pretty dogmatic in styles and and sounds and like you know it's amazing how cleveland continues i guess too like you know like there's bands that come out of there it's just like they they're not not very uh uh boring in their approaches to the genre yeah and i guess I guess like from there, what what I think happened too, and this is just my experience and my opinion, but I feel like my timing was good and the rest of the Turks timing was good going to Columbus around the very end of the 80s because the Columbus scene, I feel, got a little more active and without going into really boring urban planning talks and stuff, Columbus as a city became a little more interesting as the 90s went on. It used to be like the joke was we would call it Cowtown or, you know, if you grew up in Northeast Ohio, you only went to Columbus if like to go to the Ohio State Fair or if, you know, one of your uncles had football tickets or something. There there wasn't a lot. Of, even though it was a state capital, kind of had a reputation as kind of a small, sort of boring, just college town. Mm-hmm. But then as the 90s wore on, a lot of the musician types, in my opinion, a lot of the musician types, instead of just moving after four years of college, like most people did in Columbus, actually stuck around and kind of laid some roots. And they had great record stores, great record stores. Cleveland had good record stores, too. But Columbus, they were like four or five of them on one street street that you could just walk to you know mm-hmm. and there was a constant influx of new students and yeah a lot of them were douchebag frat guys but a lot of them 
stuck around. And, and so you always knew that there'd be new young people coming around. And there was also the Columbus College of Art and Design on the other end of town that wasn't always involved in the indie rock scene, but was kind of around. And, and so it was just an interesting growing scene. And I feel like Cleveland's scene from the mid to late 80s was petering out a little and trying to figure out what to do next. And Cleveland College Radio was always miles above anything that was ever in Columbus. We didn't really have any of that. Being the largest university in the country, had no good college radio um, after WSR was gone. But Columbus, when we got down there, was just, I think, picking up. You know, mm-hmm. And again, weird mix of bands. Gibson Brothers, this weird... Charlie Feathers meets I don't know what, you know, noise, I don't know, really fun. Great Plains were kind of winding down, um, and then the Thomas Jefferson Slave Apartments came, and and Scrawl was really cool, um, you know, kind of jangly mix who would do ZZ Top covers. I mean, and it to me it carried that mantle of the kind of Ohio what-the-fuck thing um, and actually put out records and actually tried to tour. And that was a weird thing. I mean, even though Columbus is a very sit-on-the-porch, you know, on the old couch getting high and getting drunk and living real cheap, a lot of bands in Columbus actually started putting records out and tried to tour more, or tried to anyway. Um, And there were labels like Anyway Records and Data Panic that tried to put out records. And Cleveland, I just felt like it was at a kind of a standstill. So I think our timing was good getting down into Columbus. And also Columbus was growing and was a college town that a lot of the national acts would come through Columbus and sometimes even bypass Cleveland, which they never did before. So it was just good timing. And, uh, you know, for us, but to go to your hardcore thing and everything else, there wasn't a lot of that in Columbus. Columbus is very rural. It's more rural than Cleveland. You know, Everyone thinks nowadays because of politics, Ohio is such a conservative place. Man, when I grew up in Cleveland, it was heavy union town, Mm -hmm. a bunch of freaky bands. Dennis Kucinich was our mayor at one time, and he was an atheist. I mean, you know, it was like Cleveland was a weird, interesting, I don't want to say super liberal, but pretty, pretty democratic town. And then when I went to Iowa State, I was like, oh, I see why people think... I was concerned because once you get about an hour or two down in Ohio, it gets much more rural and much more conservative and much more white. And Cleveland was much more mixed ethnicities, much more mixed food, more older buildings, older streets, older names, a Rockefeller, you know, stuff like that. You got down to Columbus and it was Columbus really didn't grow until the 1970s, really. So, you know, here we were in this town that was kind of growing. And now Columbus, I'm pretty sure, is, a, is the biggest town in Ohio. And I think it's the 14th largest city in America now, you know. Mm. So we were we were moving into this town that was growing. and um, But there wasn't a hardcore scene. There was no history of a hardcore scene. There wasn't really much music history in general. Mike Rep was around, and he was awesome because he had some good stories of bands like his band, The Quotas, the Quotas in the 70s. Yeah. It was kind of, a, yeah, kind of a collective in a weird way. But Mike Rep doing all that stuff, he had stories of seeing the New York Dolls or Ron House saw the new york dolls or some of them had vague memories of when the electric eels lived in columbus for a year you know and and you know you would hear that stuff columbus never really had from what i understand i mean uh any kind of hardcore scene like that kind of at all it was just more rural indie rock like um just more laid back kind of it didn't have a heightened it gets you know, it for a minute, right? Music like, awareness. In like the late 90s, right? There's that Columbus Fest thing that kind of starts. I remember going to that. Well, yeah, later. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I mean the really very end of the eighties and early nineties yeah. we got there. There were a couple local bands that that um that we liked. Um oh, now I'm forgetting the name of the one band had a great name. But um <laughs> totally blanking. We only played with them like once or twice. But um Oh, True Aim was one band. Okay. That's a very uh, early '90s hardcore name, right? Yeah, True very, Aim. very much. <laughs> and um, yeah, and and it was there were two or three bands like that, kind of that played out once in a while. One was kind of like your your vegan hardcore band kind of thing. Um, friendly guys, good guys. And what happened was when we started playing, we um, you know we looked around and Jim and I when we were trying to get the band going, and then we did get it going. You know, we we always kind of talk like, well. You know, there's not really we, – we were getting into, like, playing on college radio. We were really playing more and more of the Stooges and the Saints and Radio Birdman and MC5 and, like, that kind of stuff. And we weren't really seeing that around town. We love bands. We love Great Plains and we love Scrawl and Gibson Brothers and everything. And there were some other new local bands that were coming up that were kind of grungy that we liked all right. But we didn't really see just plain old, like, just punk stuff, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. So when we did run into it, like a true aim or something like that, there were maybe two or three bands like that. And we used to play at this, uh, Euro place, this restaurant, the second floor restaurant that had a shitty stage in the back and they would just book anybody. And we started playing back there. And, um, with those bands for a little bit and you know just wasn't totally our thing but they were nice guys and we don't know if they liked us either we kind of goof with each other and you know um and and then those bands kind of went by the wayside somewhat quickly but by then we met gaunt and gaunt were very brothers in arms kind of things you know really into like you know into that kind of proto-punk stuff but also into like buzzcocks and stuff and and then into they were also in a new like mud honey and knew some of the better early grunge. So like once we met gaunt and we had like kind of a brother band to play with, then we were like, well, let's just try to bring them into town that sort of sound in this vein, you know? And we always felt like we didn't exactly fit in Columbus. Um, I mean, we fit, we had friends and we got shows and everything and that's fine, but we didn't exactly fit into the kind of, there were local sort of grungy ish bands that would always pack clubs and it took us a little while to really pack out places, but it was great. It was an act, very active scene and everything, but it just, there wasn't a lot of that kind of like straight up punk stuff. And then later, yeah, by like mid nineties, late nineties, there were different like fests and shows that came up and house venues and stuff. But by then we were already touring a lot and stuff like yeah. that. You know? Yeah. Were you guys already into like kill by death stuff and collecting records in that way by this point? Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, I remember when the first Kill by Death, it's weird. It came out like 88, right? Like yeah. 89? Yeah, 89. It's kind of weird to think about. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember getting that right away. I mean, I remember just picking that up um, at Use Kids. And yeah, I mean, it, it just played right into, I probably obviously already knew about, I don't know, Really Red or, yeah, at that point, even the Weirdos were kind of a forgotten band. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, like, if you knew who the hell the Pagans were in 1988, that was like, you know. So, um, it just played right into that. And, and um, yeah, we love that thing and thought it was just hilarious. And I liked the sense of humor too. Like I thought that was kind of lost on a lot of hardcore and hardcore got so like self-serious. And, you know, when you hear a lot of that really obscure regional punk from the late seventies, it's just ridiculous. Like it's just yeah. so funny, you know, and, and um, just so out there. And uh, yeah. And then, you know, once we met, you know, a couple of those came out and then we met, Tim Warren in 92, you know, he called us to want to do a record with Crypt and he did that feel lucky punk compilation, which I still think is probably the best of all those, those comps. Um, 
Yeah, and then Byron was putting out those uh, Bloodstains Blood records. Yeah. And, yeah. So we grabbed all those early and started doing those. And, um, yeah, so, and it was fun to try to knock out covers of those because, you know, they're kind of easy or, or fun or no one really – everyone had already covered, you know, the Ramones a million times. So it was <laughs> kind of funny to try to cover the nubs, you know, or, yeah, yep. or whoever, you know. Well, we we unknowingly or probably even subconsciously knowingly also covered the nubs at a certain point, but I'm sure. Oh, yeah, probably, the job. Yeah. yeah. And I probably heard your cover of job first. That's actually where, probably where I became familiar with that song, but well, well, yeah, I mean, I probably, I mean, you know, that happens a lot where you hear some song. Oh, my, my stupid story like that is when I was a little kid, a little kid, I heard Linda Ronstadt's tumbling dice before I heard the stones version. So, yeah. you know, we've all got our stars, but, um, I just remember we were in San Francisco once and we were playing bottom of the hill and, and, uh, I think maybe Joe, yeah, Joe Biafra, I think was there and he brought him up the guys from the nubs came to the show and I was just oh, like, fuck. I, now it's like, we're so used to hearing these old bands come back and they play and everything. And like, you would have never thought in a million years in like 1994 that, or 95, maybe it was that any of these bands would ever give a fuck or even know that they were being covered yeah. or anything. Any of these like killed by death bands. And here's two of the guys from the nubs show up and they're like, Hey, we just, we heard you covered our song. We heard it. We really liked the version. I'm like, what the fuck? This is amazing. And, and he gave me, you know, he had an original of the single and gave me one. I was just like, what? You know, it was just <laughs> such a bizarre. And now I think there's been so many compilations and so many late that reissue all this old obscure stuff but back then even to find a nub single would have been bizarre even to find a kill by death comp was hard enough and then to think that any of these bands would even heard it it was it was it's hard for me to explain how strange that was but it was a great night and i was very excited <laughs> i think that th i think that stuff is still like kind of like there's obviously a lot more labels reissuing it now but like the yeah. nubs for example like that I, that would still blow my mind to see them you know and it, yeah it, yeah. At this point, like, I yeah. think that stuff is still, I don't know, and it's so good, you know, and it almost like heralded a punk rock renaissance when, when people rediscovered it. No, it did. It. It's like, it is true. I think it's true what Larry Hardy was telling me that he said, you know, it's gotten to a point now that like a lot of the bands he works with, like, you know, if you mention the damned or even, or, or like the dead boys, they're like, Oh, like that's not somehow yeah. weird enough or something, yeah. you know, but, but, um, you know, cause it's gotta be even way, 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 way more obscure, you know? Yeah. And, um, th but it did, it became like a genre of itself. I mean, KBD, right. Mm -hmm. You put that in eBay and, you know, it became its own sort of genre. And I remember thinking that kind of started happening around like, probably like like around 96 or 7 when you so many labels that had the black and white ripped up punk covers you know and the mm -hmm. you know the seven inches you know what i mean it was like you know all like it was like these bands were influenced specifically by kill by death comps you know which is great you know whatever but it was just kind of funny to see you know well it's also amazing when you think about like how how that happened with the with the nuggets comps you know with punk starting yeah. in the first place yeah yeah, and like, uh, you know, by the time you meet Tim Warren, who already has a litany of reasons, he hates the Pebbles comps or something <laughs> like that. You know? And and he loves them too, but he hates this and that and that track on the seventh one on the B side, you know. But but um, but you know, and then so that's why he did all the the back from the graves yes. and to try to right the wrongs of previously poorly mastered garage comps. But um, but yeah, I uh, yeah, I mean that's what happens. It becomes it came like a genre, and I don't know that that can really happen again just because the way that music gets distributed, you know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's a whole other topic for a whole other day. But you know, uh, that sort of uh, organic, weird creation of a genre somewhere 
you, you know, that I don't know. But I just remember trying to tell people how, like, when they pr- first put out the the um, Velvet Underground reissues in, like, 85, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Like, they put out VU and that Another View, those two records of, like, previously unreleased songs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they reissued the first album or whatever. Um, I just remember thinking, like, this is awesome. Like, those records were impossible to fucking find you know, in, in five, and like, who cares about this stuff? But you just started hearing about underground or like college radio bands that liked them, you know, REM or whoever who would cover them. And, and, uh, and just how bizarre, like even, you know, to meet somebody who even knew the Velvet Underground, you know, and again, thinking back, the Velvet Underground broke up, what, 70, 71? It's 1985. That's only 14 years later, you know, but it just seemed like, you know, lifetimes away, you know, and it's sort of like, and then every band of the world suddenly like sounded a little bit like the Velvet Underground for a few years, you know, mm-hmm. and then when the Kill by Death stuff came out, you know, yeah, it was just amazing how many, but, but whatever, that's a whole other discussion for another day about downloading and record distribution and all that crap. I don't know. Well, I think also like you, like you said, like those records weren't around, like the Velvet Underground, it wasn't like they were always at hand. Like they it disappeared for 14 some odd years. Yeah, not at all. Stooges too. You know, any of them, especially yeah. the MC5. You yeah. couldn't find MC5 records at all. But, um, but yeah, and yeah, it was it was a very exciting. You know, when you actually found something like that, or you'd hear about it, read about it before you'd actually hear it. You know, <laughs> yeah, which was always kind of a weird thing. But well, I anyway. had John, I had John Reese from Rock from the Krypton, and he was talking about hearing about Rock from the Tombs and reading about Rock from the Tombs before getting to actually hear them and that rock from the crypt existing before he'd actually heard rock from the tombs just because that bootleg wasn't even available. Yeah. I remember him telling me, he's like, yeah, he goes, I know the name rocket from the crypt. He's like, he goes, we, we just figured we were a California band. I was like, who the hell's ever heard of rocket from the tombs out here? He's like, no one's going to know, you know, it's kind of funny, but, uh, it's amazing how the world has changed, you know, and how it's changed. Yeah, it is really process. bizarre. <laughs> oh, I remember when that first when that first one came out. Oh my god, I can't believe I'm blanking on the fucking name of it. But that first Rocket from the Tombs compilation that had an actual nice cover. Oh, uh, was that? Yeah, with it just not. Yeah, the black and white cover. I can't believe yeah, I the name, but I think it's called Life Stings. One came with the single and everything. It was like yeah, yeah, Jack Black or whatever. Yeah, okay. So um, I remember getting that used. You know, it was probably eight bucks or something. I'm like, wow, I'm finally hearing all this stuff, you know? I think it was the same year that I got first crime compilation, San Francisco. I'm finally hearing this stuff. I mean, I'd heard some of it. I had a crime bootleg single, and I had some Rocket from the Tomb stuff on tapes my Robert Griffin made for me. But it's like, wow, somebody actually has this stuff and, like, made a <laughs> You know, now it's like, but whatever. Yeah. Well, this has been amazing. I've kept you for the better part of this afternoon, Eric, and I would love to invite you back. I would love to invite you back for a part two at some point. I love to do it too. We barely even uh, scraped the new Mom Turks history, but this is how I originally got into punk, right? So we covered that. Yeah, exactly. Covered that part. I find this. (laughs) I find most of these episodes will wind up being like, you know, twelve part uh, epics by the time it's all said and done because yeah. I like to move well, I would love to slowly. do it again. It's, you know, well, you know your shit and have a great band. So, so oh. I would, anytime you want to talk, I'd be more than happy. So well, that is some high praise from Caesar because I tell you, <laughs> I was, I, I, I saw you guys, oh, you. 
I think I think I think the first time I saw you live was even late. No, I must maybe I saw you at that opera house show, but if not, it was definitely with the helicopters. And I remember you getting everyone like you would do to to crouch down, like the whole club full of jaded Toronto people that normally form the Toronto Fishbowl at shows and won't even approach the stage. You got the whole packed Lee's Palace to crouch down, and it was just like this moment of <laughs> me realizing the power of a front person. First time I ever tried to do that, I think, was at the Las Vegas Shakedown in 99 in Vegas. And that was a crazy weekend. I mean, I, I look back at who played that show, and it's just ridiculous. I yeah. mean, it's like Ron Chans and Dead Moon and just tons of bands. But, um, but yeah, we, uh, I, I tried to do that then. I was like, what the fuck? Totally off the top of my head. I was like, well, that was fun. But anyway. <laughs> so, um, well, yeah, I would love to do this again. And, you know, whatever. Just let me know. And, uh, uh, and off the record, in case... Thank you, Eric, for coming on the show. And as you can hear right there, there's room for part two. There's room for part three. There's, there's room for, for many more parts. Many, 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 many more parts. Um, because that was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I, yeah. And pick up that book. You know, we never learn. I, I strongly, strongly recommend it. If you like this podcast, that, that's what this book is right up your alley. I promise you that. It is this kind of nerdy. Hopefully, well, hopefully this podcast lives up to that. Cause I think really it's, you know, part of the inspirational thing that kind of led me to want to do this thing. I didn't even tell Eric that. So that's why we got to do a part two. Anyway, next week on the show, you know, we, we're going to, we're going to, we're bringing in one of the white whales. This is someone that I've wanted to have on the show for a long, long time. Uh, this is someone that I've been a fan of for a very long time. Someone that once again bridges my two favorite worlds. That's right. The punk wrestling connection is so strong next week because next week on the show, we have Sammy Zayn. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the work of Sammy Zayn, I strongly recommend you look up some of his stuff that he's done over the years and, and dig into a mysterious past that he has as well. Um, but if you're not familiar or not a fan of wrestling, do not worry. Next week is just one of the, I don't know, one of my favorite conversations I've had on the show. And it's not just because he's one of my favorite wrestlers. I think it's just, he's got a, a kind of unique perspective on punk rock and music and, I don't know, we get into some philosophy of music and punk and wrestling next week. It's it's wicked. There's some great stories in it, some great callbacks to other episodes. And, and yeah, this is the guy, this is the guy that ultimately is responsible for Jesse Michaels from Operation Ivy coming on the show. You know, so that's the thing. Sami Zayn, you know, is, is, the, is the bridge, is the bridge of... of many worlds. Um, and he also does some incredible charity work with a really awesome cause. We get into all this next week and I assure you this is one not to be missed. Oh, I'm so excited to get to hear this one. I've wanted to do this one for a long time. Uh, so I'm going for, you know, one of my favorite singers one week to one of my favorite wrestlers the next week. And who knows what's coming up the week after that. I, I kind of know because, you know, I'm looking at who I've got sitting in the tank and who's coming up on the interview list, but, but you know, it'll be a surprise for you. Um, I assure you next week is no surprise in quality because it is awesome. It is awesome. Thank you everyone for listening. Go out there and make your own culture. 
thank you very much to Tristan, um, show producer, my brother. And this podcast would never have been possible, never have been possible without the work of Kim Ross. Kim was someone that came, you know, when I started this thing and, and helped me every step of this thing. So, Kim, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, Kim's moving on and isn't going to be working uh, with the podcast anymore, um, but she will always, <laughs> always be part of this podcast family for all the hard work she's done for this thing. Uh, Kim, thank you so much for everything. And uh, yeah, talk to you soon. And that's it for the show. Uh, go out there and make your own culture. Uh, I'm going to be hard at work at this new job. So things are going to be, you know, it's like one of those things where it's, things get a little hectic when I get a new job. You know that because it's, uh, you know, in addition to Kim and, and Tristan and, and people helping me do this thing, though, uh, a lot of it really requires me to just do it. And when I'm really busy, it's kind of hard. Anyway, I'm not going to bore you with any more details. Next week, though, Sammy fucking Zane. Thank you again to Kim. Thank you to Tristan. Uh, and I will see – oh, thank you to Eric, of course. <laughs> And I will see you next week. Go out there and make your own culture. Anyone can do it with a little help from your friends. All right. Bye, everyone.